Are we doing this? Oh, we're doing this. It's the Bon Appetit Foodcast, and I'm Adam Rappaport. This week, uh, I talk with Bon Appetit Test Kitchen Manager, Brad Leone, and Associate Editor, Christina Che, about one of my favorite subjects, cast iron skillets. I own a couple. I love them, but even I will admit, I'm always like, Am I supposed to wash them with soap? Do I not use soap? Is it just hot water? Do I not use hot water? And like, how do I season a skillet? And like, am I doing that right? It's kind of like the hardest working pan in the kitchen. And I just hope I'm working it in the right way. So uh, Christina and Brad answer all those questions and more, as well as some great recipes to cook in your skillet. You do have one, don't you? If not, go get one. And after that, senior food editor Claire Saffitt sits down with one of my favorite food people in New York City, Natasha Pickowicz. Uh, Natasha is the pastry chef at Cafe Ultra Paradiso and Floribar and Estella with chef uh, Ignacio Matos. Natasha was just nominated for a James Beard Award for Outstanding Pastry Chef. Also, if you happen to live in New York, uh, Natasha is helping organize and taking part in this very cool bake sale in just a few days on April 8th uh, to benefit Planned Parenthood at Cafe Ultra Paradiso, which happens to be one of my favorite restaurants in New York City. It's open to the public and goes from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. There will be tons of sweets, goodie bags, cool ceramics, and so much more. So stop by for a good cause. All right, now let's do this. Here we go with Brad and Christina and I talking cast iron skillets. Che, how many skillets do you own? I own just one, and I've had it for about seven years. Ooh. Can, can you share with us what kind of skillet it's, it is? <laughs> it's a lodge. Uh, it's 12 inches, which frankly, as far as your typical like home cooking cast iron skillets go, that's probably like on the upper range of what someone has in your house. Like that's going to fit, you know, like a whole flattened chicken pretty comfortably. Because I think in this uh, cast iron skillet package you edited in our April shoe, you endorse the 10 inch as the optimal skillet size. Yes, I did. So I, I guess I technically do also own a So are you not practicing what you preach? Is that what you're saying? Well, <laughs> no, it was more that it, the last time I moved, I kind of decided I was only going to bring one. And so I left my 10 inch with my parents because they preferred the more useful size. Mm. Uh, Wait, which aren't, is, aren't they supposed to be giving you stuff? Uh, well, you know, they do live not that far away, so it's basically like a free storage unit. So I've really <laughs> been taking advantage of that for the past uh, 10 years or so. So, so your skill is like on loan to them? Uh, basically. Could they you... know it's coming back. <laughs> all right. Okay. All right. So you say you have a lodge, and, and Brad, maybe you can speak to this, because I think what one thing that intimidates a lot of people about cast iron skillets, and it's interesting because I think they are perhaps one of the most uh, fundamental tools in the kitchen they also are one of those tools that elicit a lot of confusion a lot of concern or worry sure and i think a lot of people when they buy a new skillet like a lodge it comes to like well do i need to season it and how do i season it and if i buy it new is it not going to be all like non-sticky and shiny like it's supposed to be and it really depends on the skillet you have and like when you said you you know to the first question how many skillets do you own i own entirely too many like more than i'll I never use them all, you know, I have an old Griswold, you know, we have some old lodges, that butter pat, I really love those. But taking care of it, yeah, it can be intimidating, you know, especially if you if you buy a new one. Wait, wait, how many is too many? 
Well, it depends who you ask. What I do you know? No, how, I'm asking you. How many do you own? I probably have like 15, 20. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if that's not in- including like rectangular ones. <laughs> what, what, what <laughs> I kind of have a thing. <laughs> what do you mean by you mean rectangular pans or rectangular like griddles? Yeah, so I probably like griddles, like okay. any cast iron product. Okay. Because uh, they make a lot. If you, I mean, there's two rules of thumb and schools of thought for it, I feel. It's either you can season it. You know, by either doing a polymer conversion with an oil, or you can. Are you just getting scientific with us? Every now and then. So, uh, all right, all right. So, talk us through option one. What does that mean? Option one is okay. You have your raw cast iron skillet or pre-seasons. You know, they call it now. Some of them come, and then you cut. You turn your oven up to as high as it can get, or you can even do it on a grill, which is better because uh, this can be kind of a, a fragrant process. And <laughs> you and cover. Smoky. Yeah. So you cover it with you know just a thin coat of. A neutral oil. You can use vegetable oil. You can. I prefer to use a flaxseed oil because okay. it makes a stronger polymer, which I'll explain. So you do a, a, a quick coat on the cast iron, put it in your hot grill or your hot oven, upside down, and put a sheet tray underneath it just for any drips. And then you bake it for say an hour or two, and that oil has a it does a conversion, a chemical conversion from an oil to a polymer, which is a it, you know it just it, it's almost like a type of I don't want to say plastic. It's it's it's, it's a polymer. And it, 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 Brad, you've said the word polymer like nine times, and we're only like two <laughs> minutes into this podcast. Okay, I'll try to. Not Jay, to say do you know it. what polymer means? I sort of know what polymer means. Brad can do like the scientific portion, and I can do the the human the the human English translation. Lay it on us. But I feel like the simple way of thinking about it, and like, tell me if you agree with this, Brad. Yeah. Is you know when you apply oil, and by apply we mean you know you take a rag, you take a paper towel or something, you do a really thin coat, rub it all over the pan, and then at that point, it's going to still feel like if you rub your finger on it, it's still going to feel sticky. You know, you're going to have residue left over. Once it goes through that baking process at that super high heat, like 500 degrees, right. for like an hour, all of that stickiness is going to be uh, gone. It's going to have essentially become a non-stick coating or layer on the surface of the pan. And that's what we talk about when we talk about cast iron's non-stick properties. Yeah. And, and, and the theory that the more you cook with that skillet and the more oils and fats and stuff you apply to it the better it gets well the more coats of that conversion mm-hmm. now once that conversion is locked onto your cast iron it almost look it'll have a glassy look to it and um it will stop any of the cooking stuff that you you know say you're cooking fish or you're cooking it'll help not have it penetrate your cast iron it kind of will seal it yeah so it's not taking on new flavors which is kind of a beneficial thing Although, can I be honest? I still don't. I still refuse to cook fish in cast iron. Well, how come? Best fish I ever had was cooked in a cast iron. What was that? A halibut. Nice. Ripping hot cast iron, skin down, and just, you know, I'm talking 550 in an oven, and then pop it back in there, and it, it was. What do you mean, pop it back in? Back there? in the oven. Well, you start on the stovetop. Yeah, or you can preheat your, yeah. you know, either on the stovetop or get it ripping hot in the oven. Well, so yeah, let's let's talk. All right, because I do want to get to this about what to cook, what not to cook in a in a cast iron skillet. So you you've got your skillet, you've seasoned it. Um, if you're like me, uh, the I own well, I have one and a half. I have a ten inch. I bought at a yard sale. One and a half. Well, on a, on a way to a wedding in Roanoke, Virginia, like 15, 20 years ago, we stopped and we were looking at stuff. I'm like, oh, there's a cast iron skillet. And at the time, I'm like, I didn't have one. I'm like, I'm supposed to own one, and it was ten bucks, and it obviously been around for decades. Goodbye. And great buy. And then the other night I was doing 
cast iron skillet uh, pizza night in America, Brad's famous recipe, which we'll talk about shortly. And I needed two skillets because when you have one in the oven, you want to have the next one getting ready to go for that next oh, yeah. pizza to come out and go in. And, oh, a and so I so I said, Carla, our test kitchen director, I said, can I can I borrow a skillet? And they had one of these cool new uh, ones that we feature in the magazine from. Uh, smithy ironware and that are really kind of cool looking with a little bird on the handle and she's like i'm like i just want to borrow it she's like yeah sure you do i'll never see that again so it's still on loan but i do plan to bring it back one of these days <laughs> to the bottom of test kitchen so anyway so uh so got a nice skillet nice and shiny love both of them what is good about why do people swear by them in terms of cooking like you know what i mean like wh- why not just like a regular stainless or non-stainless sure because it's, it's well it's it's a heavy it's a heavy metal you know it's it's cast iron so it's gonna retain its heat and if you're cooking a steak or chicken or anything and you want to get a real good crust on it or a crispy skin it's just going to retain that heat and just just give it a much more even contact on your on the protein or whatever veg, or anything that you're cooking, and not and not stick in the way that while I do like a basic sort of stainless, say all clad for making like pasta sauces and tossing right. and stuff. Like sometimes fish in that or other things might you might get some stickage. A lot of that is I feel um, not so much the pan you're using, but it's a lot of it is technique. Like for fish, for example, I don't think it matters what you're cooking it in if it's not releasing it's because it's not ready if the skin isn't releasing from the, the pit, fish the yeah, yeah exactly so if it if, it, if you can't flip it or move it then it's it's probably not done it's probably not ready to flip i sense a fish podcast down the <laughs> pipeline che what do you like to use your your one skillet for well so that kind of is my go-to for anything that i'm trying to get a really nice color on so you know your crusty steak your crispy chicken thigh Mm. like anything that basically is an animal that has skin pork chop chop, Mm. the unwrapped pork favorite (laughs) yeah so anything like that and it's so good for stuff like that because the thing with cast iron is once you get it to a really high heat it's going to stay there. Like, it's going right. to chill. Can I raise a point? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> As my wife says, I always interrupt. But that that's, like, one of the big mistakes I think a lot of home cooks make is you said once it gets to that heat level, you've got to give yeah. the pan enough time to get that heat level. If it says oh, put the pan over medium heat, put the pan on medium heat, but give it four to five minutes I to get more. to that temperature that, it, that for the entire pan to heat through to medium heat. Right. Even though it does get it holds that heat, it will take longer than, say, a stainless steel. Yeah. So, yeah, I couldn't agree more. That is probably one of the biggest. I'm sorry for interrupting, Christina. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think you're totally right. And I think, you know, if you look at the way that we and, you know, pretty much anyone else writes recipes, we're not saying, you know, heat up your skillet over medium heat for, you know, X number of minutes. But it's kind of, it's the most important thing you can do when you're looking for that kind of even color. Yeah. And especially with cast iron too, it's like one of the best things about it is that you can do that either on the stove top, so you can just like let it hang out on the stove for a few minutes and really let it rip, or you can get that same effect in the oven. Yeah. Yes, and that's and that's what I love about cast iron. It's it's such a great stove top to oven pan because there's not a plastic handle or wood or anything else. It goes right into the oven. It is. It's just an overall workhorse. You know, you can bring it out. You can cook it in. You know, over a campfire. You can throw it on a grill if you wanted to. You can put it on coals directly it's just an it's just a workhorse you know yeah and that goes to the other point i think that makes cast iron so great is that literally indestructible like that's not true <laughs> Ooh, they're actually on in in regards to metal it's actually or or iron it's kind of brittle 
So if you were to drop- are you going to night school or something on us, Brad? Like you're <laughs> busting out so much metallurgy and Scientology science, you, science on us. If you scratch the rock, we call my head sometimes. Yeah. We get some uh, some good stuff. But um, yeah, it's actually kind of brittle. So if you were to take a cast iron and drop it from ten feet onto a concrete floor, there's a good chance it might break. Oh, concrete. Who's dropping it from ten? Where, where, where would you be? That you up in the rafters or something? It's not fine. Six feet, five and a half. I'm just, it's a. It is an act. It is not indestructible. Should we go? Should we go test this out? More like a French skillet, which is like you know iron, which is straight like iron. That is pretty. You could shoot that with a gun, you know. But cast iron is uh, it is kind of brittle. <laughs> <laughs> it's like what's the uh, what's the show with the uh, the MythBusters? Oh show? yeah, and my kid loves that show. Yeah, yeah it's not we bad. should do all the things we can do to a cast iron skillet. Uh, I love I, so I I I, have, I use my ten inch a lot. Um, I think it, it in terms of yes, if you're making steak, lamb chops, pork chops, salt them nicely, get it over medium heat for like five minutes till it's like max heated all the way through, and just lay that in there and and just don't yeah. touch it. Great sizzle. Nice. Three minutes later, you lift that thing up. There's that, that beautiful, crusty, Carbled, mahogany, yeah. caramelized. You're like, oh, my God, I did that. Flip it over, do the sides, and you've just got – you literally have just made a better steak than you will get at 90% of restaurants that you will pay too much money for, I would say. Guaranteed. You know, and if you want to do the thing which we've talked about a lot in Bon Appetit, like the whole butter basting thing where towards the end you throw in a knob of butter or some crushed garlic yeah. and maybe some herbs and just sort of like start spooning that oh, frothiness yeah. over that pork chop for steak. Oh, you can't beat that. Is it just me or Jay? You're a test kitchen editor. No, you're not a test kitchen editor, but you did work the line. Want to be test kitchen you did, editor. You did work the line for the last year at uh, the Modern. Not the Modern. The whatchamacallit. The other Danny Meyer one. The un- at Untitled. Untitled. Sorry, I'm getting my museum restaurants confused. Untitled at, at the uh, downtown Whitney. Well, you would not. Would you not? I was thinking about this. I was going to make lamb chops the other night. I was like, would you butter-based lamb chops? Or is there already just the fat in lamb is so rich already, I find. I would just base it in its own fat. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. You wouldn't add butter to lamb chops, would you? I mean, I wouldn't <laughs> say no to it, but uh, <laughs> I, it's probably unnecessary. I don't know. I mean, one of the one of the things I kind of learned on the line and really should have realized before I actually worked the line was you go through, like, a crap ton of butter. Butter in everything. You just have, like, one of those metal tins just yeah. full of it, and you're just scooping yeah, out Yeah, you just, like, have your metal third pan, and you got, like... 10 pounds of butter cubed up right. for service and you're just like it's it, it's insane it's like you watch that and you're just like i never want to eat in a restaurant again that's not true but <laughs> it's you know it's the good fat you but know it's that, know what you're getting into what jay what about um all right so we, we talked about meats and pork chops brad likes to talk about fish <laughs> uh what about what sort of vegetables do you like to do in a cast iron skillet Oh, well, I think anything that it, the same principle applies, you know, anything that's going to taste better with a little bit of caramelization and mm-hmm. color on it. Uh, butternut would be like a good example yeah. of that, like kind of doing a char on a butternut squash like, and then finishing it off in the oven. Uh, you could char some like broccoli. I like doing the thing where you kind of cut the whole broccoli through like to the end of the stem. Yeah, almost like a steak. And start it. On, Cauliflower steak. Start it on the stovetop, finish in the oven a bit. Yeah, exactly. If and they're thin enough, I mean, if they're small enough pieces, you can kind of yeah. just rip them over high heat on the stove and they'll finish cooking through. But again, like that's part of, you know, that's part of the reason why it's so convenient is you can like start getting color on the stove and then you can yeah. just pop yeah. them in. If and you need to sort of eyeball it, like, you know, this needs some more, res- we don't want to call it ambient. What would you call oven heat compared to stove? Stove top heat is one side. Oven heat is more. Oh boy. 
cozy heat. Right. It's like enveloping heat. I'm gonna say something. Radial? <laughs> Radi- I don't know. Um, you know what's nice? Do you ever do? Uh, if you have a bigger skillet, I love. A lot of times I'll just do this in the oven, but maybe I'll try it on the stovetop. Um, sort of pan roasted uh, fennel. That's oh, nice. you, yeah. you sort Delicious. of you, you cut up a, a, a head of fennel, head of fennel, bulb, 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 bulb of fennel, and uh, then because that caramelizes beautifully. Yeah, it's got the little sugar you know? to it, yeah. and like mushrooms and onions and stuff like that. It just oh. they just come out fantastic, you know. And then back to the butter, add a little butter to it. Oh, so we have that recipe on bonapetit.com, seared mushrooms uh, with. Uh, butter and thyme, garlic and thyme. And when you do mushrooms, when you slice them up in like a mix, like you have some cremini and maybe you go, like, at the other day, I'll go buy a few chanterelles because they're like literally like $27 a pound. But right. you buy like an ounce of them or something, or, you know, slice a few of those up and maybe some shiitakes or maitakes or whatever. And you put them in that pan with a little olive oil and just, again, like a steak, you just put them down Leave and them don't touch them yeah. for five minutes. And then you flip them over and they're that. They, they look like a steak, and they're crusty and golden brown. And then I'll hit them with some butter, some smashed garlic, some herbs, right. toss them, and mm. oh, my God. And a little trick that I found, too, is, you, you, you know, you want to buy, you know, uh, you want to add salt. But uh, when you're – it will pull some of the moisture out. Yeah, that's why I said don't salt do it after. until the end. Yeah, yeah until they – yeah, because or, otherwise then you're getting, like, that sweated, it'll, it'll sauteed mushroom. It'll start to deglaze mushroom. that caramelization yeah. off. Che? Yes, Adam. It's interesting that we just call you Che. There are certain people on staff that just get the last name, and certain people that get the. Fr- Emma's never. You're never Wartsman, Emma. She's just Emma. Brad's always Brad. Yeah, Brad's always Brad. Kramer's Kramer. But I think that's just because like no one really knows how to pronounce your last name. <laughs> Maybe it's, it's like Crimini, Crimini yeah. or Crimini. Um, oh, Crimini. Okay, let's talk about things you don't cook in your skillet. Yes, this was something that I think was a combination of. I personally have tried this and it has gone kind of badly, but also just, you know, in a lot of conversations I had with people while I was reporting this story, a couple of things came up over and over again. So one was scrambled eggs. Ugh, right. The worst. Fried eggs on a soup, on a really nicely seasoned cast iron pan, no problem. Like right. those should be able to slide off pretty easily. And I'm sure if you did that at home in your, your quote unquote mm-hmm. smithy yep. pan, you'd be totally fine. The problem with, scrambled eggs is you just I mean you can agree or disagree with this Brad Uh, for me I feel like you just don't really get that same fluff and right if you do them really really quickly like in a really hot pan with a decent amount of fat and like a 10 second scramble you're just moving moving it around and like slide it out if you do it over time it develops that film of egg on the bottom and cleaning that is a A nightmare yeah (laughs) Yeah. and it's just like it's it's, in that sense it's not nonstick. right you know and like yeah you can't do that slow slow heat you gotta do the hot and fast scramble yeah um i think that's a big problem whereas like fried eggs yeah olive oil in there high heat and blast them quickly you also talk about tomato sauce why not tomato sauce yeah Mm. so that's something that i think uh who was i talking about that isaac actually isaac morton the guy who founded smithy ironware Mm. was talking about me about this tomato sauce being an example of something that we would consider like an acidic food i believe i mean the main issue is that you're going to just end up with sauce that reacts with the metal in a way where it kind of imparts a bit of that metallic mm-hmm. flavor mm-hmm. yeah the tang well yeah you know iron. that yeah. that kind of um because when you cook in cast iron it's and this isn't a bad thing it's actually a good thing but you do pull a lot of iron into your food like dietary iron yeah like you eat the iron yeah essentially so yeah it's it's good they you know it's good for you but like you're saying but reactions to certain acids i guess is where you start to have the problem and then i think also with a, a pan that maybe 
could be a little a little better seasoned, you I think run the risk of kind of stripping away a right. bit of the seasoning. Oh, interesting. You also write, sorry, Brad. No, <laughs> nope, skip. This is on your nope, skip sidebar about what to cook or not cook. Uh, fish, unless you want to infuse tomorrow's pancakes with the essence of salmon. Yeah. I'm with Che. I agree with that. But you're trying to say you don't. You have 15 pans. You probably have just one. Yeah, you have your pancake pan, yeah. your well, I don't salmon make pancakes. pan. I don't eat pancakes. Don't eat. Oh, yes, you do. Pancakes? I don't eat pancakes. You might not make them. I probably haven't had a pancake in 10 years. We've talked about this. We have a net issue. We have a recipe in our April issue out now. Oh, that's not true. I'm lying. With these, with these, <laughs> the last recipe, the, our, the way we cook now feature with this cool cookbook layout, whole grain pancakes, which I love, which it's has delicious. like makes like whole grains with those barley, farro, rye, that sort of stuff mixed in there. So all of a sudden, your your pancakes actually right. have some texture, some crunch. Some, you feel good about eating it. Yeah, goodish. Yeah, yeah. I lied. I ate a pancake actually. Like. A couple months ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what about? But I, I I agree with Christina on this one, Christina Che, that if you cook salmon in there, like mm-hmm. yeah, that residual because like a, especially a fatty fish like that, right? That's gonna and that fat is gonna leach into the pan itself, and you're trying to make some vegetables or chicken breast or whatever the next day, you're gonna get that salmon funk. Well, I get, it also depends, I guess, on how you clean your pan, too. So, Oh, well, that's the good segue. Yeah. So, yeah, like, let's talk. you know, we talked about the one um, method where you apply that oil and you build the polymer. Which, the, is, se- which is seasoning. A seasoning, sure. And Are then, you getting paid every time you say the word polymer or something? What's going on here? I wish. And then the other one. This episode sponsored by science. Yeah, really. Uh, and then the other way, you know, is, like, you have your raw cast iron pan, and every time that you cook on it, you clean it with water and a steel wool, and you scrub it and strip it clean. And then I this I do this a lot with my pans that aren't uh, seasoned like that. They're just oh, it's just they just work great. You know, they're like that polished kind of real smooth by nature. And then you just bla- after you clean it, strip it clean of you know everything you cooked with. You can you can even use a little soap, and then uh, and then you blast it on your stovetop just to really dry it out, get all everything out. And I feel like any of those oils and any, some of the, I'm sure there's maybe some residual flavor we'd have to really do a test but if you clean it properly and then dry it properly on that stovetop i leave it on there ripping hot for five minutes i want it to be bone dry and then i wipe it with just a neutral oil just to prevent it rust because rust will happen um if you leave it raw but just a little swipe of a neutral oil and then put it on the shelf and you're good to go i'm just saying if we were to go to the kitchen right now and cook a piece of fish Mm. And then do all that and then smell the pan, I guarantee you it's gonna smell like fish. Well, you know, I, I feel like for I feel iron when it's wet by nature kinda has a little bit of a fishy tinge to it. Interesting. I yeah. I mean there hmm. I mean there's a whole thing, like certain people, uh a good friend John Bolando, who used to work at this company, his wife just will not cook fish at home. She's of that school and that generation. Like, no, I'm not smelling up the house. Right. Like, that's not happening. So I think, yeah, there is, and especially, again, with fatty, like, certain fish, obviously, white fish, less fatty, would impart less than oils into the pan right. than a blue fish or salmon and stuff. Um, yeah, I, so I would typically, if, say, I make something and I'm s- scrubbing it out, certain foods leave very little residue right. or whatnot in the pan. I'll scrub it with something scrubby and bristly with water. You say it's okay Che to put a drop of soap in there if you need it, you yeah. know? Overall, we are wholly behind using a teeny bit of soap right. to just, like, scrub that thing clean. This right. is, like, something that we do. I mean, we do this in the test kitchen. I do it at my house. It has never – it's never once caused an issue. And and part of that is because 
you know, if, if you have a, a pan that is well seasoned, you're actually not going to be exerting a ton of effort when you scrub. You're just kind of... You shouldn't. You, you yeah. shouldn't have to. Like, all you're trying to achieve is you're just trying to get whatever might be, like, crusty or burnt, you know, those, like, yeah. bits that are on the surface. You're just trying to, like, get those away so that the next time you cook with oil, those bits are not going to get baked into that next layer of seasoning yeah. that you're imparting onto the pan. Right. A seasoned pan, I usually just clean with a sponge. You know, they usually have the little rougher side. Yeah, the green but, side. Yep. I oh. would do that. I'll do that. I'll scrub it I'll, with hot water, get any bits out. You know, what I do, and I don't know why I do this. A little salt. But, no, well, the salt. I, no, but let's say let's say there's let's say it's, it's an easy clean. I'll dry it off. I'll put it on the stovetop, and then I'll put it over heat with a little bit of oil, mm-hmm. so that I'm, in my mind that oil is absorbed. being absorbed by the pan because the pores are open. I don't. Does yeah. that make sense? Well, yes. yeah, because you know when it when it heats it expands, yeah, and then when it cools it it contracts. Yeah. So the oil when it's heat it must be getting in there a little bit, and I. I think the same thing. All right, let's talk, before we go, I just want to talk a couple of recipes, specific recipes uh, that you featured in this issue. Brad, I love your cast iron pan pizza, so. as does my ten-year-old son. Can you quickly walk us through that? Yeah. So I mean, it just it builds. It's just a great hack. I don't want to say hack, but it's just a great method for cooking pizza at home. Uh, what I like to do is heat the cast iron in the oven as high it, as high as it'll go. As high as your oven will go, and. Um, let it stay in there, like you know. Back to what you were saying before. Let it preheat. You yeah. want that thing to get hot. I, you know, leave it in there for half an hour if you can, or you can even do it on the stovetop if you wanted to. But I do it in the oven, and then once that's ripping hot, my pizza, I have it formed out already. Take Your the, dough. My dough. Yeah, I'm sorry. My dough. Yeah. I have it formed out. I will typically because I'm bougie New York cow. Just buy some dough at Italy or wherever. Oh, yeah, no, that's fine. And if you can make yours, that's that's great. Also, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's. There's nothing wrong with buying yeah. dough. And then I form it out and then take the pan out, a little bit of flour or oil, whatever you're into, cornmeal if you're into that. And then I drop it right in, sauce it, cheese Be careful it. with the hot pan. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. Will, it will burn you for yeah. sure. Uh, big and, time. And you, when I've done it, I kind, of, I kind of guesstimate the shape of the pizza with the pan. And then once I put it in, I kind of push it around a bit to get it towards the side. You have a little – you have to work quick yeah. and precise, but you do have a little – it's so hot that it, it almost – it does release. Yeah. So, like, you, it sticks for a second, but you have a little wiggle room. Yeah. You get it in there nice. You can even work – what's really nice is you can work the dough up the sides yeah, of exactly. it. exactly. And you can build, like, this almost, like, high-walled crust. Mm, high-walled crust. And then I like to drizzle a little bit of oil just around the edge of the crust for uh, quick release, as I say. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, and then back in the oven. And yeah, yeah just fresh crushed tomato sauce. Yep. Whatever cheeses you want. Whatever toppings. I like to do a little sausage. I'll, I'll, I'll do a little oh, yeah. crumbled sausage that I'll quickly sauté in a pan, like Italian sausage. Throw that over there. Maybe some shaved fennel. Oh, that sounds Ooh. good. That sounds real good. Yeah. I'm a basil after oh, when it comes yeah, but out. Exactly. Fresh. You, you know? want that basil nice and bright and fragrant, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, yeah, I let it sit in there for just a few minutes. On the, you know, let it rest a little bit. You can't go cutting right into a pizza. But do you take it out and let it rest or let it rest in I the pan? I let it rest in the pan for okay. just a few minutes. And that's, then, and that's why it's good to have two pans in rotation so you right. can get the next pizza going. Them out. Yeah. Well, I have a 22-inch skillet, so I'm making <laughs> – <Well>, Jesus. <laughs> I just need one. But, um, but yeah, totally. And then, uh, yeah, I let it rest, and then I take it out, put it on a little wire rack, get a little air underneath it. And I tell you what, I can make a full-size pizza and – you can hold it and it stands out like a, like there was a board underneath it. You know, you get a nice, mm. you get that beautiful color on the bottom crust where it's crispy. It can hold the toppings. You don't want like a soup sandwich no, of a pizza. No, no. Uh, I highly recommend that. And you can search for that cast iron skillet. Is that what it's called on the on the ba.com? Yeah, 
cast iron skill with pizza. It's so I easy. Think. And cast it's, iron pizza with yeah. so satisfying. So good. Uh, now, quickly, Che, talk to us about the um, chicken under a skillet with lemon pan sauce. Yes, chicken under a skillet. So the idea originally came from, you know, how awesome is chicken under a brick, right? You have your chicken, you're cooking it in a pan. Like, that a, is, like a butterfly chicken. Right, a spatchcock chicken. So, you know, it's every possible inch of skin that you can possibly get in contact with the pan right. is hitting the pan. Then you're applying a weight on top of that, so you're kind of unless, maximizing. Unless you're our friend Gabe, who's been on this podcast a lot, <laughs> who was boasting to Carla and me, like, what an amazing flattened spatchcock cast iron chicken he'd made. And he shows us pictures. I'm like, Gabe, did you do the bone side <laughs> down and the skin side up? He's like, yeah, that's the way to do it. No. Like, no. <laughs> so Yeah, so he did upside down. Shout out to Gabe. <laughs> yeah, no, don't do that. So the idea was, okay, well, if you have a second skillet, let's say you have a second skillet. Or 14 other skillets. Or 14 skillets. other skillets. <laughs> you you don't have a brick or two <laughs> laying around your house, which if you're Brad, honestly, you probably do. Definitely. <laughs> uh, the idea is that you can use a second pan as that weight that mimics the same thing that a brick does. And even you're more just, surface area. Probably yeah. totally. It gives you a more dis- evenly dispersed amount of weight. Totally. You're Better using a pan too. that's either the same size or slightly smaller, and you're just going to like put it on top of the chicken. And this is like solely when it's cooking on the stove, because this is a two-part chicken. You get your collar on the stove top. You have your pan on top. The skin's getting super, super crispy and brown. And then you remove that second pan, flip the chicken over, and then it goes in the oven and you finish it. And just to cook through, it's going in the oven. Exactly. It's already gotten all its color and crispiness. And the oven is just a, that radial heat, I think you said, to cook through. I got to fact check myself And you on take that. it out. <laughs> you make a yummy lemon pan sauce. And mm, so good. Um, guys, wow. All right. I'm hungry. That's always a good sign of a podcast. Uh, you can check out Che's article on cast iron skillets in the April issue of Bon Appetit. You can check out some cool new skillets to buy in there also from brands like uh, Smithy Ironware, Field Company, Butterpat Industries that Brad's a big fan of, Iwachu. Um, yeah, these kind of like small sort of boutique brands that are doing new school cast iron with sort of old school vibes. Che, thanks for coming on our your first ever podcast. <laughs> thanks for having me. Thanks, Brad. Always a pleasure. See you guys. The first thing I want to talk about is, can you talk a little bit about what you were doing before you decided to become a pastry chef um, and then how you decided to pursue pastry? Right. Um, it's a bit of a circuitous journey. Um, I didn't go to culinary school, didn't go to pastry school. Everything I learned is sort of by making very deliberate choices to work with certain chefs and, and seeking out those mentors and sort of learning from those people. So. I started working in kitchens about five years ago, and I was living in Montreal at the time. And my whole background before then is pretty different. I went to Cornell, I studied English Lit. Um, I had sort of my sights set on on writing in some way. So I was um, involved in journalism. I did radio for many years, but more sort of the performing arts, music kind of side of things. So, you know, very into music and writing about it. And I moved to Montreal because I had this idea that I wanted to get my PhD um, in ethnomusicology. So those were sort of the things that I was working on leading up to that in my 20s. Both of my parents are academics. Um, I think I had always assumed that I would go into some kind of um, academic or kind of writerly 
profession and applied for a handful of PhD programs in ethnomusicology and was rejected everywhere. And, you know, it was super devastating at the time. It was so hard for me to imagine that I could do anything else. Um, but in the process of applying for uh, grad school, I picked up this job on the side at this small sort of dinette in uh, Montreal. Um, Which one? It's called Depeneur Le Pickup. And it's sort of like a, a Depeneur is like a bodega. It's like a corner store that sells deodorant and batteries mm -hmm. and beer and cereal. But it was kind of this really amazing sort of punk, you know, queer space that also had a small lunch counter in the back. And they needed a baker. And they asked me if I had worked in restaurants before, baked, and I just needed a job. So I lied and I said, yes, I can do this. Um, and just kind of taught myself all of these basics and really fell in love with the process, really fell in love with making things with my hands, being on my feet, being really busy, sort of the camaraderie in the kitchen, um, tasting things, making things that look beautiful. Like it was this pride of expression that I'd never really, you know, experienced through writing. Although, you know, that's also a discipline that, you know, I love a lot. And then from there, I sort of needed more because I didn't go to culinary school. I was like, I need I need a chef who's really going to teach me um, technique and all of these other things I don't know. So I'm not just like, you know, watching videos on YouTube and like checking out books from the library and, and sort of on my own, but really working with a team that was going to give me structure and discipline and, and let me be better. So I got my next job as a pastry cook at this restaurant in Montreal called Lawrence. And I'm still super close with all of the, that team now and they've grown in this amazing way. But when I was there, it was like my first real kitchen job, like more fine dining. So, and it was just terrifying. It was, I think about that now and it was so intimidating. I was horrified every day, I was just, trying to make it through like my heart racing like not eating you know going to bed full of adrenaline like I couldn't fall asleep until four in the morning now I'm like I cannot work late night anymore I'm like I put in my time I did that I worked the hot side I worked brunch you know I feel like I put myself through that but it was an incredible introduction to you know prepare me to come to New York and you know work in kitchens here and 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 really sort of see what what is being offered here as well. Mm -hmm. That's funny. I also moved to Montreal trying to get a PhD <laughs> and then, and then, yeah. And then made a pivot to food. So, so I'm, I'm curious though. So like, what was it that you felt like you weren't getting in academia or in grad school that then you feel like you're getting, you mentioned a little bit like that you make, you know, making the production aspect, like making something with your hands. Yeah. I think I never thought I would identify so deeply with the sort of physical side of things, um, sort of the procedure of it, the engineering of things, the steps, um, the craft aspect mm -hmm. of it. And, you know, and I think also like I'm such a people person. I love, I love working with my team. I love working within the restaurant and, you know, I, I think I felt really like isolated with the kind of writing that I was doing, which was freelance full time. So I wasn't like based at a on a staff in a place where I was seeing people all the time. I was like trying to make deadline from my laptop in my bedroom and, you know, holding myself up. And for me, it was the 
the the physical the physicality and the and you know the dynamic movements that I was getting working in a kitchen like really felt like very gratifying like it felt you know it it made me feel super excited you know mm-hmm. so what drew you to pastry rather than cooking and like did, like did you grow up baking was that sort of a tradition of yours not at all not at all I you know my mom is from China there's not a big tradition of pastry or sweets um, in Chinese cuisine I think in terms of how we think of it in America where sweets are so important and sugar and and pastry and baking is something that a lot of people grow up with in their house I didn't at all a lot of like my mom trying to do sort of Western experiments with baking and a lot of like gross failures. So I think, you know, I, I'm drawn to pastry with, as somebody who has more of a savory palate. So I'm, I'm sort of drawn to that challenge of how to make beautiful pastries that taste great and feel good and, and look wonderful, but sort of don't play into that trap of, of being too sweet or, or, or not feeling right. And, and I kind of try to bring that mentality, you know, into pastry. And I see that as what the challenge is. And, you know, and that's where Ignacio plays such a big role too, mm-hmm. is because I want to have the palate that he does with the way that he tastes things, how it registers as he's eating them or looking at them or swallowing. You know, I think these are, are concepts that you see a lot of savory chefs applying to their dishes. But it was something that I really wanted to you know, learn and be informed by, but within the practice of pastry, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, somehow sometimes that gets a little bit lost in the in the equation. So, right. It's interesting that you mentioned that Ignacio, that together you guys sort of work to take down this barrier but that often exists in kitchens between pastry and cuisine. But I do think, and I know this is a generalization, but I think sometimes people look at pastry as gendered, like they see women are pastry chefs, men are chefs on the savory side. And I'm wondering, like, there's this kind of pervasive notion, I think, that, like, baking is women's work. Right. Kind of. Like, have you have you faced that in kitchens before? I mean, I don't want to make any generalizations, but I think that with pastry demands uh, certain qualities that I see uh, represented in women in a very obvious way. There's a lot of patience involved. You know, there's a lot of thought and care that has to go into things. You know, very rarely am I making something in five minutes, like dressing a salad and putting it in front of you and you get to eat it. You know, there's a lot of sort of forecasting, scheduling, um, being organized, being patient, doing things the right way, you know, uh, using a scale. Like, I, I think that sometimes with maybe young men that you see in kitchens who want to be chefs or are working on the line. They're sort of like drawn by the like passion of the spontaneous gesture into the fire and the, you know, dramatic plating of something that you eat right away. And I I think that's kind of like a short term goal. And what I like is sort of this bigger picture thing, you know, sort of the endurance of being able to create this like bigger concept Mm -hmm. and you know with the women that I work with there tends to be that kind of thoughtful precise nature that I you know really respond well to and I would love to work with more men in pastry Um, I think maybe you see that more at a chef level but with the cooks that I'm trying to nurture and and empower within pastry they do tend to be women you know right but I love I love working with women in the kitchen right (laughs) So you talked a little bit about like Ignacio's palate and and sort of a preference toward like less sweet desserts, desserts that have like more more dimension, mm-hmm. um, and like you do a, 
a cinnamon bun with black cardamom in mm-hmm. it. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So like where how would you describe your style of desserts sort of beyond just that like sort of more like savory dimension? What sort of what guides that style? Well, I you know, I think it all really starts with what the ingredients are. So although the food at Altro and Flora are quite different, uh, I think that there is an approach that really embraces simplicity and sort of that challenge of embracing the aspects in a more minimal setting. And and sometimes, you know, I'm really put off by desserts that feel cluttered or busy. Um, and I think sometimes the challenge is how to make this, you know, a bold statement with a little bit less mm-hmm. and, and, and really like you can't hide anything. Like right. the sorbet has to be perfectly creamy and the edges have to look perfectly nice. There's nothing on top of it, hiding it. You know, you really want to be able to experience these like pure elements and how they're interacting with each other without any of this like kind of noise, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of that starts with the ingredients and, you know, the way that we source things in the restaurants is the same with pastry as it is with savory. So, you know, we're always trying to find, like, so uncompromising. It has to be the very highest quality. The things have to be handled with care and with love. And we're trying to sort of shape those things into expressions that maybe are a little unexpected but feel grown up, that are executed well. You know, I love I love simple things. I, I love classic, timeless desserts that are executed really well and that mm-hmm. don't feel um, stodgy or, or, or old-fashioned, but somehow carry that feeling of timelessness over. Right. I love what you say about the simplicity of like a well-executed, just like a wedge of tart on a plate with a little creme fraiche on top yeah. and how there's, you know, nothing's hiding. And it's so many times, like, it's a weird trend in like fine dining to have so many components on the plate. There's like a crumble and a... Right. And a sorbet and like, you know, a million different things. And it's sort of like, I don't get it right. on a sense or like it's not. And it's sort of like all combined, like just not as delicious as eating like a piece of something. Right. I And, you know, I completely agree with you. And I think, you know, part of that is I, that I didn't go to culinary school. And I feel like I don't have these preconceived notions of like what elements must be on the plate. Like crunchy, smooth, frozen, warm, like forget it. Mm -hmm. I'm just interested in how something eats and how it feels. And I'm not so worried about like what it quote must have, you know, Mm -hmm. I think that once we release ourselves from these expectations that are imaginary, then we can actually pursue something that's a little bit more sincere, you know, like something that isn't hung up on requirements, but just, you know, feels delicious. Right. So you mentioned before we got started that um, it's an exciting time now because the spring ingredients are starting Mm -hmm. to come in very slowly in New York. It's still cold. (laughs) Um, But like I saw a rhubarb tart on your Instagram. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you have a preference toward fruit in desserts because of that sort of seasonal aspect? Personally, I do, 100%. I absolutely love uh, working with all of the wonderful things that we get. You know, all of the restaurants, um, once the, you know, the green market is really in full swing, we're going every single time it's open and we're buying, like, all the parsley. You mm-hmm. know, it's like we're just trying to really take advantage of these peak moments. And so I think for me, for sure, my palate is informed by natural things, um, things that are, you know, temporary and things that do feel seasonal. It's like, 
it absolutely what drives a lot of the a lot of the work we do in all the restaurants. Right, and it's just an endless source of inspiration because like absolutely, you know, especially in the warmer months, like every week there's a new thing. Yes, get excited. Cannot about. wait. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, well, speaking of that, so what are the like? Where do you go for inspiration? Whether it's like an, an actual destination or social media or like cookbooks, like where do you where do you look for that? Yeah, definitely cookbooks. For I mean, voracious in terms of reading and absorbing new material. And again, that's something that Ignacio is also, you know, really puts at the forefront is is being curious, diving into other people's materials, testing things out. We have libraries at all the restaurants where cooks can check out books. And I think it's really important to stay engaged with even if you're not making something, you know, you're we're getting ideas, you know, you're seeing you're seeing things that are out there. I mean, I love a lot of classic volumes, you know, like the Lindsay Share Shape and Oh my book god, is, I love that book so much. Yeah. Mine's like in tatters, but mm-hmm. you know, and it's yeah, maybe I'm not, I'm not making anything literally from there, but I'm seeing how they're, you know, that book is organized by mm-hmm. ingredient. It's organized by fruit basically, mm-hmm. you know, like as all of Alice Waters books tend to be organized by, you know, ingredients. Um, but I love that approach, you know, I love all the tartine books are so beautiful and and organized well, like Pastry cooks are always asking me, like, where are some great books to start or places to start with? Like, I love that first book that's just the kind of pastry classics. You know, mm-hmm. it's like pastry cream recipe that works, you know, like that kind of thing. Sim- simplicity. But, yeah, you know, I, we're in New York. I'm always try- we're always trying to go out and eat places. Um, I'm always, you know, trying to see what other people are doing. And, you know, you just have to constantly be, like, engaged with your surroundings mm-hmm. and, and, and seeing what's around you so that you're not stuck in. And you're spending 12, 13 hours in one place every day like I need my life to be broken up by other things too, right you know right. what's the best pastry you've had in New York City recently oh. or anything notable anything uh, that you got excited about um in New York yeah I or actually, anywhere well I actually just got back from um a night over in Philly and I was at Osteria where my friend is the Chateau Cuisine there they had like a salted butter ice cream that was like absolutely delicious mm. that uh, I loved. What else? I had like a beautiful walnut parfait at King the other mm-hmm. week that I also really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And again, these things are, they're simple. It's like piled into a glass, like no garnishes, not too sweet, you know, good with the salt, looks elegant. You know, I'm sort of like checking off all these boxes because I'm so picky when it comes to dessert because right. I <laughs> don't really like most things. Right. But. Right. So what's your process like for testing? When you get a great idea for a new dessert, like mm-hmm. what's your process like for testing? Are you workshopping it with Ignacio all the way through? Or are you kind of working like on your own you know, side? Our relationship has really evolved over the last two years, and I'm really grateful for that. But we're, we absolutely are super collaborative in everything. It, it, it sort of tends to go the same way where we'll sit down, all the chefs will sit down with him and we'll have menu meetings. And we're talking about ideas and, you know, bracing ourselves for this sort of spring onslaught of, of fruit and produce that's about to come our way. And we're thinking about, like, what we can do with things. So with something like rhubarb, for example, you know, he'll be like, well, he's like, let's try, you know, let's try that with uh, – a cream puff let's try that in a tart let's try that swirled into gelato let's try it as sorbet let's try it as a juice for a baba rum like you know I think it, it the conversation starts usually with an ingredient and then we're volleying ideas back and forth and then usually at that point I'll step away and pursue the actual production of it and mm-hmm. then you know typically what happens is we all like to taste together um, all the chefs so I'll put up sort of mock platings of all the desserts based on what we've talked about and then we'll taste it together and usually that's where 
you know, Ignacio's palette plays such a big role in that dialogue, you know, he'll be like, well, what does it need? Or does it need this? Or does this need acid? Or does this feel a little icy? Or, you know, so we're, you know, the process can take a while. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes, you know, I'll like nail it faster. But when we were opening Ultra, I think it took me like two and a half months to figure out the tiramisu, you know? Mm -hmm. like, it, it was just one of those things where he'll be like, where we would taste it and, and then we'll realize that it needs a certain kind of change. And the challenge with pastry versus savory, it's not like, okay, fire another steak, like less lacquer this time. It's like, make another cake, right. wait for it to cool, <laughs> like build it again, and then we'll taste it in three days. So there's, there's definitely the process can be a little bit longer. So there's always this like force upon me that compels me to sort of constantly have things rolling. Uh -huh. That way, you know, there's a momentum to what we do. Otherwise it can drag. And I think it, that process of developing dishes can, can get a little frustrating. Yeah. What was the difference, do you think, the main difference between the first tiramisu and the last, the, the <laughs> final tiramisu? I had never made a tiramisu before. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> the main difference, I would say, was the way that I was building it. I was building it in like a Pullman pan, like a loaf pan, mm -hmm. and we were cutting like cross sections of the tiramisu, which actually looked really pretty, like a thin kind of slice of something on the plate. And then I realized it actually ate better when we were building it sort of in a kind of more of like a casserole dish looking thing and uh -huh. serving like big, you know, fat squares of mm. it that eats more like a traditional layer cake. Mm. It's almost more structural. Exactly. You know, yeah. So we're all, we're all thinking like, well, it looks pretty and it tastes okay, but how does it eat? You right. know, it's like, and then we're rethinking it. Right. So it sounds like, you know, 12 to 13 hour days in the restaurant, you don't have a lot of time <laughs> at home, but do you ever bake at home and or even cook? I cook at home every day. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, that's a must. I, lo <laughs> I love cooking. I, those two disciplines to me, like, don't make the other one seem more tedious at all. Like, I'm not fatigued by the other, like, mm -hmm. being in my life. Okay, baking is, like, completely out in my uh -huh. kitchen. I live <laughs> in a studio in Greenpoint, and although I have an oven, there's no, like, ventilation. I, I just... It's for me, <laughs> I would if I had the space, I think, but so much of pastry for me is about like sharing it with people and 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 being able to like have that more communal experience. Mm -hmm. So I would never make pastry for myself right. just to consume alone in my apartment. Right. <laughs> Cooking is super important to me because I work during the days. So, you know, I'll leave my apartment at seven and I'll get home at like eight or nine and then I'm yeah making dinner for myself like every single day but you know I try to keep things really simple things have to be nourishing and healthy and and easy because I you know I can't I can't go out and eat like at night after work like I wake up too early like I need to feel refreshed in the morning right so we do this thing at the end of every well really Adam does it uh whenever he interviews anyone it's called the lightning round okay so it's don't worry it'll be it's totally not threatening, <laughs> but I basically am just going to ask you a series of like 10 or so either or questions okay. and you answer as, you know, as quickly as possible your first instinct, okay. which you prefer. Great. So berries or stone fruit? Stone fruit. Chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. Popcorn or potato chips? Potato chips. Pasta or rice? <laughs> rice. Pancakes or waffles? Uh, waffles. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Scrambled eggs or fried eggs? Fried. Ice cream or whipped cream with pie? Ice cream. <laughs> uh, Central Park or Prospect Park? Central Park. And finally, the one we always ask, butter or olive oil? Olive oil. Wow. Very decisive. <laughs> um, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It's great having you. 
The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and Christina Che and produced and edited by Emma Wartsman. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wartsman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.